Hello everybody and welcome to the Clinical Placement Podcast from the QMU Speech and Language Therapy Clinical Placement Team. This is a very exciting time for us as this is our first podcast and we are delighted to bring it to you. The whole purpose of these podcasts is to try to better support students with clinical placements. We're hoping to cover a whole range of topics related to placements and hear from a range of practice educators, students, members of the clinical placement team, members of our programme team and other guests. I really hope you enjoy these podcasts and I want to thank all students in advance for their contributions to them. We welcome any comments you may have and you can contact us directly at sltsemesterplacements at qmu.ac.uk. Let's get started. For our first episode, we've chosen to focus on acute hospital placements. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Susie Lloyd from QMU. And we welcome our guest, Katie Grunewald from NHS Life. In this podcast, we talk about a whole manner of different discussion topics related to acute hospital placements. We talk about daily life for a speech and language therapist working in an acute hospital. We talk about the impact of COVID. We reflect on our own experiences and working life in acute hospitals and we think about student preparation for placement. I hope you enjoy listening and again, any comments, please get in touch. Welcome to our podcast, Katie and Susie. Can I leave you to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Katie Grunewald and I'm one of the speech and language therapists at the Victoria Hospital in Fife. And I'm Susie Lloyd and I'm one of the teaching staff at Queen Margaret University and I'm also on the placement team. Thank you very much. Katie, would you tell us a little bit about your professional interests, the types of clients that you work with and maybe a little bit more about you when you graduated? Right. Okay. So um, I was at Queen Margaret University. I was there when we moved from the Kerstorfen campus over to the new campus. So that's given my age away a wee bit. Um, But I studied there and then I had three years working in the paediatric service up in Angus. Absolutely loved it but felt I really wanted to try adults before I felt my knowledge was too rusty. And I managed to get a development post in Aberdeen at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and straight into the acute stroke unit. And I've never looked back. It's just been acute hospitals from then on. So I worked in Aberdeen for two years and then I was at Nine Wells in Dundee for about two years. And now I'm in the Victoria Hospital and we see anybody and anything. We've got acute strokes obviously we've got patients with dementia delirium parkinson's ms and then we're working in the intensive care unit at the moment so we're getting a lot more trackies with all the covid patients absolutely thank you so Mm -hmm. much Susie. over to you what about your clinical interests your background where you graduated yeah so i trained down in newcastle um a long time ago, I think I graduated 2005, 2006, I did the um, the MSc programme there. So um, it was a, a, a mix of lots of things going on all at once, trying to cram it into a short period of time, but I loved it. Um, and then I worked in Glasgow for, um, since then, so 14, 14 years as a community paediatric speech and language therapist. Um, and uh, I maybe won't go into so much of the detail of my, of my client 
the clinical population I worked with for this podcast, but um, it was as a generalist service. You see everyone that comes through the through your door, um, and I I really loved it. I loved working with children. I loved working with families, um, and um, and then I I have moved over here. So that was that was my background really. Thank you very much. And you work um, in our program team on the clinical placement team, but also doing lots of our paediatric paediatric lectures and speech yes. sound disorders yes. in particular. That's right. Speech sound disorders and um, the lifespan um, module as well, and some of the um, kind of professional practice stuff too. So yeah, lots of mm. lots of well, I think really fun teaching, but um, it's, it's fun for me. <laughs> So my background um, is also, I graduated from the University of Strathclyde, always been a Glasgow girl at heart, and uh, I graduated in the year 2000, so 21 years ago from the BSc programme there. It doesn't feel like 21 years, so, you know, 21 years ago since I graduated makes me sound so incredibly old, and I still feel about 26, (laughs) so I don't look it, but (laughs) but ultimately, um, yeah, I'd it just feels like yesterday. I remember my student days so well from University of Strathclyde. Mm-hmm. So my clinical background as well is is in pedi- started off working in paediatrics for a couple of years. My interest was always primarily in adult acquired, although I absolutely loved paediatrics too to start with. But then gradually over time, I got opportunities to explore different avenues. That was within NHS Fourth Valley, moved into adults exclusively, and then in NHS Fourth Valley, and then moved into NHS Lothian and did primarily an acute sorry and did primarily a rehabilitation adult post in the NHS Lothian for many years before coming to QMU around about six or seven years ago now. So that's right. uh, now. So we've got a nice varied mix here. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you can you that you Katie can join us today to discuss this. Susie and I are working on the clinical placement team and we are super keen to think about better preparing students for clinical placement or thinking about how we can better support students with clinical placement. So we noticed a bit of a theme emerging in recent years of students reporting to us, you know, a range of different issues. But one thing that's come up quite a lot is that students feeling completely surprised by their adult acute placements when they come along, that maybe they were different from what students first expected. Um, For some students, it changed their entire career aspirations. And we thought, well, what better? You know, thing to do than focus on this in our in our first podcast, and mm-hmm. we're hoping as a pilot that this will allow us, if you like, to open up a whole different range of kind of podcast topics around, you know, supporting students going forward for clinical placement. So that's the kind of context of today, and our discussion. So thank you so mm-hmm. much for joining us today. I'm interested first of all before we really get started in the nitty gritty though to tell me a little bit about your memories of clinical placement as a student. We've talked about our student days. What do you remember about clinical placement? Oh, I remember initially having to get up very early in the morning to get a bus or drive there and it was always nervous and you were never quite sure where you were going. And especially when I came to my adult acute placement, just feeling so lost before I even got to the office and thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to get through today? And just, yeah, so it was a mixture of feeling wow and awe of these therapists, but then thinking they are completely out of my league. I could never do their job. That's it for me. And I remember actually having one place experience that just made me feel so 
inept as a possible new grad therapist I thought that is it I am never doing adults again I'm stepping away and it wasn't until I did my three years as paediatric therapist and we were in a joint office and I kept chatting to the adult therapist and they're like come on come out and visits with us see if you like it and that was sort of let me get my foot back in the door again said actually do you know what it's not all the way it was on that placement that's one experience and it doesn't mean that the rest of my experiences would be like that and since then I've absolutely loved it but it it has the positives and the negatives that I had on paediatric placements and adult placements has made me very aware of how I am as a clinical educator going forward so yeah I can relate to so much of what you're saying Mm -hmm. Susie over to you what were your experiences of being a student speech and language therapist and clinical placements for you yeah I have to say a lot of what Katie said there resonated with me too but I think the um the most overriding thing that really hit me on my first placement was very much being thrown in at the deep end so we had our first placement um the the week after induction week so it was week wow. two um, and and I just remember turning up and say and, and being given these are your um, it was the aphasia clinic. So, you know, these are the these are your people who you're going to assess. Um, that sounds so stressful. Oh, it was oh terrifying. Goodness. We were all I remember us all clustered in the, the sort of the resource bit trying to work out what this palpa thing was because we had no idea in week two <laughs> of, our, of our course all kind of talking about but we thought they were going to teach us how to be speech and language therapists not just tell us to go and be speech and language therapists but of course it was all supported and it and you know we weren't just expected to be speech and language therapists but it did feel incredibly overwhelming and mm-hmm. really kind of in at the deep end um, and I have to say that even and then by the time we got to the end of that placement and I felt like I had developed some understanding of what was expected or some kind of familiarity and I was a bit more in a comfort zone. And then, of course, you go on your next placement, which is completely new and different, which mm-hmm. was a, a, a paediatric placement um, with groups, language development groups, um, and felt like I was starting from scratch all over mm-hmm. again. And all of that kind of comfort that I had I had started to find my feet in was was just suddenly the rug was pulled out from me all over again. And I felt yeah. like I was right back at the very beginning. That's so interesting, Susie, because it, it's something that I, I really relate to as well, that feeling of when you change client groups that that it feels really different to start with. But I often mm-hmm. think I often wonder that by the end of the programme that students can begin to get a feel for a lot of the skills being transferable. So mm-hmm. people panicking that it's a brand new client group, but actually mm-hmm. develop so many skills over the course of the programme that in yeah. fact by the end of it you're applying the very similar principles if not the same principles to an entirely different client group with a lot you know it's, it's much easier to do that than it was mm-hmm. at the time but granted not if you've had your first placement <laughs> a week <laughs> after starting that's <laughs> probably the best story that I've heard Julie I can't uh, I can't believe it but it's very interesting well right. I don't know if that's how they still do it but it, it was back then but I, I completely agree that absolutely by the time you come to um your final placement or certainly for me by by the time I came to my final placement I realized that I was drawing on my experiences of all my Mm. other placements Mm -hmm. regardless of client group and that was so helpful yeah it's like a penny drop moment isn't it Mm. that bit comes together and you think oh this is not actually that different explaining instructions to the parents of a three-year-old child about you know a a language game is actually not particularly different Mm -hmm. from explaining you know simplifying your language to work with an adult in a you know, who's maybe had a stroke on one of the yeah. hospital wards, something like yeah. that. 
came to mind. Um, my clinical placement experiences were really varied as a student. Um, I would love to say that I loved clinical placement. Looking back, I loved it, but I was a nervous wreck as well. Like mm-hmm. I will never forget that feeling of nerves that I would get. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get there? Often roping my parents in to getting me there safely so that I would never, never be late. All the things that mm-hmm. I worried about and spent a lot of time worrying about that I wish I didn't worry about you know, now looking back that practice educators would have been supportive, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I had very, uh, really mixed experiences in terms of client groups. I got to see a whole range of different client groups. I loved the adult stuff. I loved the paediatric stuff. I, um, yeah, I had one practice educator that I worked with uh, quite near the end of my programme who I found inspirational, absolutely inspirational. And she had a way of working with young children that just changed my whole perspective about looking after the well-being and psychological well-being of children actually, which actually influenced my practice across children and adults she she put that first she was I feel like she was ahead of her time actually mm-hmm. in terms of what she was doing we weren't really writing about person-centered care or psychologically informed care then in the way that we are now but she was very very interested in looking after the well-being and the mood of our young children on our caseloads yeah. in a language unit and she was fantastic and I feel like I talk about her quite a lot in my own lecturing and yeah she just really inspired me and something that kind of came out really from what both of you were saying there was this idea that sometimes it doesn't always go to plan or it's more difficult than we think it's going to be but we can we can learn something from it mm-hmm. and we take something from it that we realize that clinical placements can be challenging but they yeah. can so and also the influence of our practice educators that the way we we are with our practice educators can really influence their experience and the relationships yeah. that we have that the practice educator role is a really important one mm-hmm. you know and and um in supporting our students so it's really interesting to to hear you talk about that it struck me after listening to this that i didn't actually introduce myself my name is fiona campbell and i am one of the lecturers on the speech and language therapy program at qmu just like susie and a member of the clinical placement team. Yeah, so Katie, just to pick up on something you were saying about how your experiences really um, not only informed your later practice, but who you would be as a clinical educator. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, and that kind of picks up on, on what you were just saying there, Fiona. Um, I, I, that really spoke to me as well. I still remember like individual phrases that my practice educators told me. I remember yep. in that first placement where I was utterly terrified, but getting feedback my, from my practice educator telling me that I had um, uh, sort of repeated back or reframed back whatever it was that the individual had said to kind of check understanding. And she said, that's really helpful for people mm-hmm. with aphasia. And then it just, that's filed away in my brain yeah. as a link with, okay, people with aphasia find this helpful. Um, and, and it has stuck with me. And I found mm-hmm. myself repeating those kinds of things as a practice educator with students yeah. on placement. And I find myself saying them in inductions um, as mm-hmm. a, you know, working in, a, in university. And I, I just, I just kind of wanted to notice that and agree with you. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely the one thing that as soon as I became a practice educator that I realised is that no matter what else happens on placement, it's my role to make sure that the student has the best opportunity to enjoy the placement. I would hate it if a student walked away and said, adults is not for me because of how things were with my clinical educator. Adult acute work is not for everybody. This is not why half of the people get into speech and language therapy, and that's fine. But to walk away from it thinking it's not for me because 
I don't feel comfortable with that client group. That's fine. And that can change in the future. You don't know where you'll be five years into your career. But I think that is what I'm so passionate about for students is giving them the best opportunities to enjoy the placement and to just experience it. So, yeah, absolutely agree with anything a placement educator said to me. These things have stuck with me, good and bad. Um, yeah. This has been really interesting. I wonder if we could reflect a little bit on our own experiences of adult SLT placements when we were students. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is something I could talk all day about. Mm. I remember so vividly the warmth of the hospital. So I've had a few I had a few adult place I had two main adult placements as a student SLT. I remember being a bit bowled over, a bit overwhelmed by the warmth of the hospital, the speed at which the SLT walked up and down the hospital, visiting different wards. And just that overwhelming feeling of being a wee bit, feeling a bit clunky and a bit unsure mm -hmm. of myself. People moved really quickly and with purpose. And I didn't quite know where I was going and I felt quite shocked by it. And of course, the other sensory aspect of the hospital is it comes with its own set of smells. Mm -hmm that I wasn't familiar with and yeah just a busy busy environment and I loved it but it took a while for me to get used to it what yeah. were your experiences Susie go on, let's come to you first what were your experiences of adult of adult yeah. work so we had um I had two adult placements and one of them as I was saying was that very first one in the aphasia clinic and um so it was a very controlled environment really um which was which was really nice in many ways for me to get to know the client group. I had worked with um, all kinds of people um, in the past in a kind of in a caring role, but um, so it wasn't kind of a completely new client group to me, but it was new to be working as a, as a speech and language therapy student. Um, so that was in a way kind of, kind of nice, but challenging. And I felt I really got to focus on how do I communicate with people? How do I support their communication? And so then I felt not completely I didn't think I was completely unconfident when I got my next adult placement um, in a hospital. And I thought that would kind of be fine because I saw it as as another step on from that. Um, and it was completely different. It was like mm. being hit with a with a bowling ball. Um, I went into the wards and it was it was just so overstimulating. I remember feeling it was very overstimulating. I'm sure it wasn't chaotic. I'm sure it was very well controlled and very well managed, but it felt to me as somebody coming in with no understanding of, of what the layout was and what the plan was and what the organization was. I I felt, oh, this is just I'm over overstimulated, overwhelmed with chaos here. And I remember going in a dementia ward. And again I had worked um not a lot, but for a young person, a fair amount with with people with dementia, um, and so I didn't I didn't feel like you know I was I was meeting somebody with dementia for the very first time, but the amount of people, of course, there with dementia in all different stages, and you know people who were lost in the wards or people who mm -hmm. were asking questions and confused, and and you know it was it was really it was a it was a lot for me to try and manage, and of course I had gone in with my these are my goals, this is what I want to achieve on my placement, this is what I want to develop in. Um, this is the experience I want to get. And um, and of course, you know, my agenda was totally out of the window as soon as I, I walked onto the ward and met the people that I was going to be working with. Um, and I just remember being really, yeah, just just really it was a, an assault on my senses more mm -hmm. than anything else. And I loved it by the end of it. But once I had got over all of that, I loved it. And I almost reevaluated whether I wanted to work with adults or children. 
Um, but it was it was definitely a steep learning curve at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Something you said there really, really resonated for me around just that that sense of that first experience of being around someone who was really quite unwell. Mm-hmm. You know, the person I was not phased by that. I had had a lot of experience. You know, I had my grandparents until I was an, an adult myself until quite recently actually. But it wasn't around the age of the, some of the people. It was the frailty and how mm-hmm. unwell some of these people were mm-hmm. that was just really and how involved we were actually. In those, you know, in those early stages of when someone was hospitalised, that's a real memory for me, actually. Mm-hmm. But that being that feeling a bit scary, and yeah. I think for most people. What about you, Katie? What were your experiences? Um, very, very similar. That feeling of overwhelm. The and and you go into the hospital thinking it's going to be very clinical in one way, but you really don't appreciate the heat, the the light, the noise, the constant beeping and bleeping and and alarms and people running. And it is very busy. It is exceptionally busy. I remember that. And I remember as well feeling shocked at the age of some of the patients because they were similar ages to my parents. And they were going through the, the most traumatic experiences and just feeling, oh, my goodness. And I find it very hard to keep distance from that. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling quite emotional about it. Um, and I do remember crying, um, especially yeah. in the train on the way home, just not knowing how to sort of come down from that and how to express my emotions about that with my clinical educator, just feeling like, this is absolutely ridiculous I should be holding myself together a bit more but it was shocking and people walking about in hospital gowns which don't do up at the back I mean Mm -hmm. when you're 18 19 you've never seen somebody like that before and there's tubes and I remember one time a nurse came in to take blood when we were in the middle of an assessment never seen somebody getting blood taken before it was it was very overwhelming I remember Mm. that but overwhelming and yet I still do it and I still love it so obviously it wasn't enough to put me off entirely <laughs> it's so interesting look I'm exactly the same because I chose my whole career path granted I didn't work in acute for very long but I mean I still I still remember it really well but I chose it too and there are mm-hmm. points in my placement as a student so I thought I'm, I'm never going to do this mm-hmm. you know when I held up you know I was trying to do to assess the auditory comprehension of a man with with an aphasia, a very severe aphasia, very early on. No one else had spotted that he had comprehension problems apart from my mm-hmm. clinician. I hadn't given it much thought as a student SLT at that point. I was holding up, you know, like an apple in a book and asking yeah. him to point to the apple. You know, I was using real objects for, you know, quite a basic level of auditory comprehension. And he just lifted his, you know, his, his unimpaired hand and swiped the objects right out of my Mm-hmm. right out of my way you know I just remember you know just those real emotions real feelings of yeah. and I can't believe that I went on to pick it but I think it's really interesting yeah. Yeah. I am um, with the emotional side of things I remember being really struck what really got me in my feels was um when I had worked with people as a carer you know you're in their homes and you're in their home environment and they're relaxed and they're comfortable and they might be dealing with all kinds of you know health issues or or disabilities but they're in their own homes Mm -hmm. Um, and as a carer your role is to you know look after somebody do their physical care make their food you know whatever it is that you're doing and that's all um it's a responsibility but it's you know it's quite a straightforward everyday thing what the emotional thing for me um, on my kind of adult placements was the responsibility that I felt the SLT was carrying. I remember quite early on watching the practice educator having a conversation with a family um, 
uh, with the family of someone who had Huntington's and talking about, well, they were going to continue with oral feeding, even though they knew it wasn't safe because these were the end of life decisions they were making and the quality of life decisions they were making. And, and it just really sort of, you know, I was used to supporting people with their feeding in a very different way. This felt like a really momentous, important occasion and decision and, and discussion that people were having. And I felt I felt quite overwhelmed by the responsibility of it. I mean, obviously, I wasn't carrying that responsibility as the student, but... I found that quite overwhelming too, quite emotional. So something for you, Susie, there about actually realising in your student days, realising the importance of the SLT role in the Yeah, role. absolutely. Because yeah. I had gone in knowing that speech and language therapy is important. You know, I, yeah. I chose it because yeah. I think it's valuable and important. But there's a difference between that kind of intellectual understanding or, or, you know, I had experience of seeing how valuable it had been. But to, yeah, I just felt really struck by, yeah, this is this is massive. Yeah. And it's yeah. probably a bit we hadn't thought of. You know, it's mm -hmm. something we thought, well, maybe that's not a part of the SLT role. Yeah. It's really interesting. We've had some brilliant student engagement on this topic. So we've had lots of students get in touch with their experiences and lots and lots of agreement. So um, I shouldn't call Phoebe got in touch saying that she loved her adult placement and agrees with so much of what I had shared um, on Twitter about the initial overwhelm of that sensory experience. And Alison, hello to Alison, who's one of our ex-PD Dip, um, or one of our PD Dip graduates from a few years ago, felt it was definitely overwhelming given you know lots of reading and information beforehand which was very useful but it didn't really scratch the surface for her of what she actually got to see on placement and it opened her eyes mm -hmm. for her to what she wanted to do and what she you know her boundaries what she could and what she couldn't handle mm -hmm. and I think I think the way to I think what's important to do is to balance it because I had you know I have lots of student memories of some you know being being quite frightened of the work and being a bit overwhelmed by the work but seeing some having some lovely moments mm -hmm. with people who were in hospital and really seeing the value and what I was delivering to these people even as a student I said and I don't I mean that I mean that kindly even as a student SLT student SLTs are a valuable resource you know in acute mm -hmm. hospital placements can you know can do so much to support SLTs but I just remember having some lovely moments with individuals of just like you're saying Susie of recognizing the, the sheer importance of the work that we do and our role with the multidisciplinary team. Yeah. What Alison has said there as a student I thought would be a good question to put to you because Alison mm -hmm. to you Katie because Alison has said you know it didn't scratch the surface of actually what she got to do on uh -huh. placements so reading about the basics if you like of the main mm -hmm conditions that you might see wasn't enough that she was amazed yeah. if you like by the, the diversity of the SLT role so I wonder yeah. if you'd be kind enough to talk to us give us a day in the life of Katie and okay. in the acute hospital so yeah. in my team um, at the moment of three of us so I'm part-time in that team and there's two full-time therapists and an assistant so we always start the day with a call between the four of us um, for which referrals have come in and we just go through, see which ones we can action straight away, which patients are maybe not ready for us to see them yet and which patients should really go to a different speciality. Um, and then it's prioritising who needs to be seen first, who we've already got on our books. And then it's it, the day starts. So it's going on to all the different wards. We cover acute stroke, obviously, the acute admissions units. We cover surgery, renal, cardiac units, respiratory, the list goes on. So I can understand what that student was saying about, you know, you read up on all these conditions, the ones that are highlighted in the lectures at uni. And 
it's it's rare to see some of them, whereas others you realise suddenly actually a patient with delirium is going to be my bread and butter this week. There's lots and lots of these patients coming in, um, whereas somebody with motor neuron disease, thankfully, that's quite rare um, in the acute hospital setting. They're mostly handled in the community, though. So it's I think it's amazing that students endeavour to do so much reading before they come, but it's accepting that you're not going to know everything about the patients you're going to see coming into hospital because it's just so varied. Absolutely, and it's not that you're going to be going onto the stroke ward, which is if, if you only read about aphasia and dysarthria, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're going to primarily think you're going to be, you know, going to sort of acute receiving units or yeah. onto stroke rehabilitation wards. When the reality yeah. it sounds like you're absolutely everywhere. In everywhere, everywhere. We walk for miles on our placements, and I do try not to walk too fast, as my past students will tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would like, appreciated that as a student. <laughs> so usually in the morning, it's trying to get as many swallow assessments done as we can, so that we can update all the recommendations for lunchtime. Um, a lot of my colleagues will do lunchtime assessments just make sure people are eating safely and it's at that point that we feel a lot of the um, nursing assistants can sort of model what we are doing with specific patients rather than trying to catch them later and say oh by the way if you do this with this patient they manage better so it's trying to get that done as early in the day as we can and then get to the communication patients and really a lot of what we're doing now is thinking you know this person is a real person they've come in they've got their history they've got their family they've got their life and it's been interrupted Mm. and they've come into hospital and that is terrifying and it's unbearable and it's getting in there as soon as we can and saying right what can we do just now that's going to make the biggest impact for you is it giving you a bit of pen and paper so you can write down something maybe it's just severe dysarthria and they can manage that way or or should we be trying with iPad straight away? Should we be telling the medical staff, change how you're talking to this person? Because they can communicate. They have that ability if you change how you communicate with them. So it's that working around that. And then wherever possible, if we've got new patients coming in with aphasia or with severe dysarthria, we're trying to get a bit of personal history about them so that we know who this person is and what's important to them. And typing that up going through it with the patients and checking they're happy with what's been shared and then leaving that for them to share with other AHPs. Um, so, yes, there's lots of work, multidisciplinary working as well, making sure the physios can communicate effectively with their patients, looking at cognition assessments with OTs. So it is a very busy time in the acute setting. And it sounds like such a cliche to say, but no two days are the same, are they? No, not at all. So there must be a sense for students coming into that that it's quite difficult to know and prepare yeah. exactly for what that yeah. day is going to yeah. look for example. Yeah. It's really interesting and it is something yeah. that's come out, if you like, from students before. We talk later on in the podcast a little bit more about preparation for placement, but for now I wanted to go back and ask Katie just a little bit more about working in the hospital, especially about working in intensive care units. Katie, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your role in ITU as a speech and language therapist. 
Um, okay, this has sort of been developing over the past wee while, especially with more and more COVID patients coming in through. So um, a lot of the time we're working remotely with the nurses when it's a red patient. Um, they will be telling us, you know, the patient is now tracked. They're looking at deflating the cuffs and starting to do some swallowing work. So it's just giving them some guidance about how to reintroduce fluids and then building up. Um, to more sort of diet options um, and then with communication as well obviously that's been hugely important especially with the COVID situation um, it's looking at what we've got to work with um, so can a person indicate can a person write are they using the Passimur valves yet are they able to get their voice um, they are trying to move patients much much faster onto using the Passimur valves in the ITUs which is great um, and so a lot of it, again, is educating, excuse me, educating the nurses and the medical staff about the best ways to communicate. At this point, I wanted to hear more from Katie about life in the hospital during COVID-19. I specifically asked her what impact COVID-19 had had on the way her team works. It meant that our team had to be split in half. So we were in two separate bubbles um, so that... If half the team came down with COVID-19, the rest of us could go in. Um, so it had just that sort of impact straight away on, on team morale. It was, it, that was hard to deal with. And then just the, the amount of PPE you have to wear, you have to remember how often to change it. They keep updating the recommendations as well. At the moment, any time you approach your patient, we've got to have new gloves and pennies on. Whereas before it was only if we were actually doing some intervention with that patient. So constantly changing. Um, and again, as as my last student pointed out, the, the social distancing in the hospital at the moment for staff, it's it's not there. We're we're just having to be realistic. There isn't space. Um, patients need direct contact with people you know they need to be moved they need to be helped at lunchtime and again that's something for students to be aware of you know if you've been in a in a wee bubble for some time because of COVID-19 because lectures haven't been happening in person that is very intimidating to come into that situation when you've not been used to it for such a long time so yeah okay. So it's interesting you say all of this some of our students have commented very you know really similar comments mm -hmm. and this idea that you know AHPs, nurses and doctors still have to work in, in their huddles, you know, mm -hmm. they're not able to social distance in the way that the guidelines would, would suggest you need to because it's not practical in order to mm -hmm. deliver direct patient care. And as someone exactly that, if you've been, you know, learning away from campus and on spending long time, long periods of time on your own, then it can be quite yeah. overwhelming to see mm -hmm. the of people coming towards you in the corridor and it takes, you know, a bit of getting used to really, you yeah. know whole yeah. new environment and I guess from the you know the emotional side of things I guess there's there's so much as an SLT as imagine there's so much change in guidance you've alluded to that already you know mm -hmm. things are changing all the time there's a lot to keep on top of but yeah. actually you're also dealing with people who've been really pulled away from their families without any family yeah. could you talk a little bit about that and how that's yeah. done the role the, the trauma that patients go through generally when they're admitted to hospital is something that I'm very familiar with from a personal experience when I was um, admitted to hospital having my second child and it turned out that 
I had meningitis, so I had to quarantine. Yeah. I had an emergency C-section. My daughter had to quarantine. I couldn't see her when she was born. And I just felt after that that my medical care was very up or down and I, there wasn't a clear path at all. I didn't know what was happening from one day to the next. I would have cath- um, cannulas removed one day and then the next day it would be put back in again. Um, so I'm always very, very aware of the trauma that patients are going through. I mean, some of these patients have been married for 50, 60 years and they've never been away from their spouse. And then suddenly they're sleeping in a bay with the other people and they're being checked every night for all these observations that have to get done. So they're not getting good sleep. They're not seeing their partner. They're not eating food that they're familiar with. They can't watch the TV themselves. It's got to be what the room wants to watch. They can't even hear the TV because it's at the other side of the room. So every single aspect of their life has been affected by this hospital admission. And that's, that's one of my thoughts whenever I see a patient is it's, we are dealing with a person who's in trauma at the moment. So we've got to be kind and we've got to support them the way that we can. And, and show that that empathy yeah, understanding yeah. so vital and that pre-covid really and that was pre-covid yeah yep so now yeah. so when covid hit suddenly there was no visitors at all in the rehab hospitals and there was only certain numbers of video uh, visitors in the acute hospital it had to be very managed you had a time slot um and just that the loss of contact with people's loved ones was very shocking on the patients and I'm sure there will be write-ups about the impact on patient recovery Um, and we had one chap who we've had quite a few chaps actually who are um, English isn't their first language so they didn't even get the sort of the banter with the staff whereas the the other patients who English was their first language they would have that community whereas these patients couldn't get any of that unless it was on a video call and as as we all know with communication impairment it is so difficult to express everything over a screen Mm -hmm. um so it it has been very very hard for these patients what they're going through um and, and that's where things like taking a personal history is taking that time to sit and work out how that person is best communicating is so vital at this time. Because if we can make that a little bit more bearable and make other staff a little bit more aware of who this person has been and who they are, then they maybe start feeling a little bit more like themselves. So, so really what we're saying here, I guess, is that the role of the SLT around communication in general, I guess this is heightened in COVID-19 because, yeah. well, firstly, we don't have the family and loved ones and friends around the patient to help no. understand that person, mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. needs to get communication moving between them, all the strategies that we might give someone to support communication, that all just changes. Now, I can yeah. imagine, I, I don't know if I'm wrong in saying this, but I can imagine SLT is almost becoming a, a bit of a hook for, for some people, you mm-hmm. know, almost you know so dependent on the SLT the time that the SLT is going to take you know around communication that we can Mm -hmm. if the SLT's role is heightened Mm -hmm. in some way yeah absolutely I would say that absolutely and that's where it's been so vital having assistants who can who can go to the ward as well and and assist with that role of just having time to sit and speak with the patient and 
Yeah, and and even um, our assistant at the very start of the pandemic, she had been given an iPad from our um, nursing managers and she was going around arranging video calls for our aphasic patients and holding the, the iPad while that call was happening. Um, way, way back in the days before everybody started getting access to iPads because we were so aware straight away of how isolating it would be not having visitors when you already have a communication impairment. So. Yeah. Some mm-hmm. of our students have commented on our Twitter thread or have been in touch directly to share some of their experiences and we had um, some input from Jess, one of our PGDIP students, around um, an experience in paediatric and a paediatric acute hospital. So um, sharing really similar themes here around, she said, I think specific to paediatric during COVID times, it was really difficult to see young children so vulnerable. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about the fact that some of the long-staying newborn children that you know never ever seen faces including the parents face without a mask on that playrooms and the hospitals mm-hmm. be booked one at a time so potential for massive impact on development of children and then Georgia has also commented around just the fact that you know it, it can be, it can be so overwhelming and not to feel embarrassed or silly about feeling overwhelmed or uncomfortable in, in COVID mm-hmm. times and that having a PE who's there to support the student to understand how the hospital works and I, to help identify where the different challenges are you know mm-hmm. is helpful and giving students that little bit of extra time and for students to expect to take a little extra time to adjust to hospital so would it be fair to say that hospital life at the moment looks quite unlike it looked before Covid and still yeah. like that at the moment? Yeah yeah it's it's not at the the stage it was maybe last summer when we were in the peak thank goodness it's not there at all when there was just wards that we could not physically go on to because they were red um, and every patient you went to see you had to check have they had a Covid test can I go near them oh my goodness they've now come back with a positive test I've just been to see them it that was very very stressful but we're starting to get visitors coming back into the wards again so that's opening up but again it's the it's the impact that's having on families who haven't had that natural time to adjust to their loved one and how their loved one has been after say such a stroke or or with a delirium that's ongoing um, and that's that can be quite a slap in the face for a lot of visitors that they had in their mind that their person was still like they were before and then they're presented with this very very different picture so many weeks down the line um and and there's no there's no sense of community like there was before because you might be in visiting one person and you're the only one in the bay whereas before there would be families here families there and and there was a, you felt you were sharing that with other people you weren't on a, on your own so it, it is a very different environment but i think it really has highlighted how essential we are to get in there and support families as soon as we can with their communication impairments and just trying to calm people down when it comes to a swallowing impairment and what that is and what that means. Um, yeah. It really struck me when you were talking about, um, you, you gave the example of someone who, um, you know, needed on-body sign to, to understand what was going on and what was happening and how it was you that had understood that. You know, it was mm-hmm. the speech and language therapist that had known, yes, this is what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think sort of going back to those other comments you were making about isolation and particularly under COVID, how isolated families are and people's expectations and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what it is as a speech and language therapist that we bring to understanding what that means to people and what communication yeah. is and, and therefore what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. That really mm-hmm. struck me in what, in what you were saying just there. 
This really got me thinking about changes in clinical practice in the acute hospital setting for adults. I've become aware over the years of what I thought were very slow and gradual changes towards perhaps more of a life participation approach to the management of people with communication problems. I'm particularly interested in what I see as a slight move away from impairment-focused assessments and intervention towards perhaps a greater understanding of their lives and their identities. I was really interested in asking Katie her opinion on this and whether she'd noticed these changes and what she thought of them. I actually agree 100% with that. Um, I think definitely in Fife there's been an ethos here for a while about um, person-centred care and um, personal goals. Um, And so I think when I when I first joined Fife, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I supposed to have these good conversations in hospital to work out what's important for this person? But just with time, I've realised more and more that absolutely everything that we do in the acute hospital now is focusing on that person having been a been a person and currently is a person and working out, you know, who's important to them and what's important to them. Um, and just thinking, well, how do how do I communicate that to the staff? How do we make sure that patient feels that they are being valued? Um, so again, it's with the personal histories, it's with sharing the information that we've taken from our conversations with patients. Um, I mean, I have um, one of the trainers in Fife who does the good conversations and personal outcomes approach. One of the things she said to me, which did shake me to my core, is that you know, we shouldn't really be assessing patients at all unless they are saying to us, I want to know more about what I can do and what I can't, because what does that actually bring to to that patient? That's it's, fascinating. It's controversial, I guess. Very it? controversial. And I remember being dumbstruck by that. And then I thought, you know what, you're right, because assessing somebody just makes them more aware of things that they can do and they can't do. And it's constantly changing, especially in the acute setting. Um, isn't it better that we focus on well this person can do this so let's work on that let's build that skill um, and this is what's important to that person well let's focus on that how do they reaccess that so even in the acute hospital we are really fo- focusing much more on person-centered approach and personal outcomes and so that doesn't necessarily equate to gathering a full and detailed understanding of someone's communication profile at that particular point in time it may and it may yep. be what that person needs and wants yep. and the influence of the family you know they yep. may feel that they need and want that but actually it's not an automatic assumption that we're going to focus on impairment that we're seeing much more in the way of life participation approaches yeah. coming coming into play I think that's really challenging isn't it in terms of who we think we are as speech and language therapists and what we think it is that we bring and really trying to get to what is it that we're doing here but it's also been really good and and what I really liked about what you were saying there is it makes us rethink well why are we doing what we're doing and Mm -hmm. whatever the end the final answer is that you come to whether it's assess or not assess or whether it's person first or identity first it's really important to understand why you're doing that Mm -hmm. and what the reasons are behind it I think. Absolutely. Mm We decided to turn our attention to looking at some of the feedback from students on their experiences of the value of SLT in the hospital setting. We received quite a lot of comments on this topic, which I think probably says something in itself. Many students reporting real moments of realisation on placements of the true value of what SLTs deliver. 
let's come to let's come to some feedback that some students have offered about um you know their experience of the value of SLTs and hospitals because we've had we've had a lot of comments about this. Um, one student has commented that despite the placement being different from anything that she expected and it ended up being one of the most enjoyable placement experiences, one should become accustomed. In this case, she had been accustomed to work, become accustomed to working in a hospital environment. I think it, the student said, I think it's important to put into perspective really how important the SLT role is in the hospital environment, which is something I hadn't appreciated as much until I had my placement. One student commented that the opportunity to have an acute hospital placement really supported her to cement her knowledge of aphasia, dysphagia and dysarthria. So that led us to really get thinking about what preparation students should do for placement. So thinking about refreshing knowledge, I wonder what advice would you give to students coming to you on placement, Katie, about how to get prepared, what to study, what things they could think about given the diversity and you know significance of the SLT role? What do you think would be helpful? Um, I think one of the things we assume when you come in hospital is that you might not have worked in a hospital environment before. So one of the things that's really important is to look through the uniform policies because there is not a hospital in Scotland that will let you come in with false nails and hair down. So check that first and make sure you're going to be able to comply with that. Saves any awkwardness on that first day. Um, and then just sort of practical things like make sure you've brought something to eat during the day, make sure you have something to drink because it is a very hot and overwhelming environment and sometimes a little bit of chocolate halfway through the day can make a big difference. Doesn't so just. Yeah, absolutely. So practical wise, that's what I'm thinking. But in terms of getting ready to actually come and be a student with us, one of the things that I send my students out straight away is a list of acronyms that are used in all the medical notes and then as soon as you start on placement with me I will be getting you to lift information with myself from notes and to try and help you become more familiar with these so you'll you'll remember that CVA means that somebody's had a stroke that sort of thing and um, so just becoming more familiar with that and more familiar with how notes are laid out so just become open to write lots for your clinical educator and sort of that sort of knowledge starts to filter in. So bring, um, a notepad, bring a notepad and pen. Bring a notepad and pen but be prepared to just check at the end of the day so nothing sensitive goes home. Yeah. You've got to make sure we're following all the confidentiality policies. And then the other bit of advice I would say um, and the last two students I've had have really pushed them to Get an assessment that, that is used on placement, be it um, a language screening test or even just a dysarthria assessment and practice it, practice introducing it, practice asking the questions with your flatmates, with your families and just think, how do I explain this to this person? Why I'm doing this without saying I'm here to do a test for you or I'm going to assess your speech oh, yeah. because that immediately makes patient's shoulders go up and they think, oh, my goodness, I'm back in school. And that doesn't make for easy conversation. So just getting used to that idea of introducing it, trying to explain what you're doing with it, and then thinking, right, how do I feed this back to the patient in a way that makes sense? Um, there's been some lovely talk in the student feedback about uh, therapists using different analogies to explain things, um, like a block in the road, I think somebody mentioned, um, or not being able to reach books. 
I use earthquakes yeah. and libraries. Ah. Um, so it's talk it's us through just, that one. talk us through that. Talk right. So if you've got somebody who has um expressive aphasia, receptive aphasia, word finding, I would say, right, in your head you've got your own library. Every word that you know is in that library. It's all sectioned, it's all ordered. You can think of a word and your internal librarian finds it straight away. And then along comes the stroke and it's like an earthquake. So all these books fall off the shelves into a big pile in the middle of the floor. And they're still there. I love it. But you just can't find the one you're looking for. And some of them are still on the shelf and that's great. But we have to put the rest of the books back on the shelf. Um, and some of them get put in the wrong place. So we have to refile them. That's my explanation for it. I love it. And then some of them may not find their way back, you know. Exactly. May, may continue on the floor for a long, long time. But, yeah. but, you know, I love it. I love an analogy. Mm -hmm. That's so funny because I use the same one for uh -huh. children when they're right. learning their language. So, you know, uh -huh. um, you have the kind of the 50 words, then they have their explosion. And yeah. that's when you get all the grammatical rules and stuff. So if any of your people have had children or, or been children to come and see me as, as, as little ones, I'll have told them that, yes, you know, when your child's learning language, they're just acquiring books and they're just keeping all of these books and they're building them up in a pile on the floor. And it's fine because there's only so many books. They can find the ones they need. But eventually they have the piles got so big, they can't find the books anymore that they're looking for. So they have to organise them and buy a bookshelf and mm -hmm. put them on the bookshelf in an organised way. And that's when they they start to learn all of the grammatical rules and of course once the bookshelf's there then it's very easy to acquire books and put books on so you buy loads more and so that's why they have a vocabulary explosion once they hit a certain number of words. I and love that that's too. brilliant. Isn't it? I can so, completely relate to it as a mother of a three-year-old, three years mm -hmm. and three months when it's just all exploding again you know and we're getting all sorts of interesting you know, stuff going on yeah. with this language. I love it. I really, really relate to that. I used to use the analogy quite a lot of a radio tuning in and out. Right. Maybe a bit more with ad digital radios. Maybe people eventually won't get this one, but this whole idea of an old analogue radio with the kind of white noise. And I would definitely explain to people why, you know, with word finding, that sometimes they could get a word and sometimes mm -hmm. they just couldn't. And there's sort of tuning and just some fine tuning problems, you know, just some interruptions mm -hmm. in the kind of wave like the radio wave you know yeah. and that worked for some people quite nicely as well just mm -hmm. that you know or just unable to get the word just the shop shut today you yeah. know yeah. <laughs> words which I relate to you know quite a lot mm -hmm. myself from time to time you know I just yeah. can't I think <laughs> the shop shut early tonight you know but it is interesting so it's a big, I guess what we're saying to students here is that they could think ahead about things like this mm -hmm. what ways could you explain what you know you you know that there's you know, so much that students know and are picking up all the time. How might they think about explaining normal voice changes in an, in an adult or in a, you know, um, normal language development? How could they make that, you know, more accessible to someone who doesn't have the, you know, it's almost about identifying your own pre-existing knowledge yeah. and thinking about how you can break that down. I think that's a really, really bit of advice. Your point about assessments was really interesting as well. And I guess at the moment in COVID times, it's not as easy for our students to come in mm -hmm. to the library and borrow assessments because of, well, we can do it, but the assessment will go into quarantine for a short period of time and not be available yeah. to other students. So there's something maybe mm -hmm. about having the confidence to ask your practice educator for some time on the placement to yeah. maybe explore the assessment 
practices. Absolutely. I mean, because I, I very much doubt there is a SLT department out here in Scotland who use every single assessment that we have every day. So it's which ones are your um, educators using? Can you find a spare copy of that one? Can you look it up online? Can you see how you would score it, that sort of thing? Can you score it at the same time as your clinicians scoring it so that you've got that practice of writing things down while somebody's speaking? Um, you know, what notes would you take? How is it going to make sense? So, um, yeah, just these sort of things you can do on placement without having to take the assessment away from your resource library at uni or taking it out of the department at your placement. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. much of this applies to so many other placements, doesn't it, Susie? Mm -hmm. So many different oh, groups. Absolutely, definitely. I think these are all really, really good, useful, practical things. And there's so much that you can be practicing as well that's that's not just about, you know, having the physical assessment there. You know, you could be thinking about, well, how do I introduce myself as a student? How do I explain what the role of a speech and language therapist is? How do I introduce that I'm about to do an assessment task without necessarily calling it an assessment task? How do I introduce that I'm going to do a therapy task? Mm -hmm. How might I um I don't know, give feedback to um, families, to individuals with communication disorders, to people of different ages and abilities mm -hmm. and, you know, all of these kind of things. And then um, also sort of making use of the of any materials or any um, resources within the university, because there might not be as as quick and easy access to assessments. But, you know, you've got lecture notes and you've mm -hmm. got um, uh, different kind of resources, reading lists or um, links to different things. Um, if it's something that's been taught in the last year, then there might be asynchronous activities available. If your year group has had the clinical units, because some have and some haven't, then there might be some particular ones in there that you might want to pay attention to that are um, specifically useful for your client group. You won't I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing the unit that will take you a long time but you know reading through and having a think mm -hmm. about your clinical clinical thinking and decision making in relation to that so lots and lots to prepare and then just kind of thinking about what you were saying there Katie about um you know how you explain these things each mm -hmm. and everything that you kind of you look up and you think about and you learn about then think yep. about well how would I explain that to someone yep. in a way that they could understand yeah yep. I think mm -hmm. something that's probably quite important to cover because is that some students do come to placement without much you know, the first placements coming to placement without much prior knowledge, maybe having access to teaching and learning resources, lectures on a on a particular topic, you know, can be one of the challenges for preparing mm -hmm. for clinical placement. And as practice educators, I guess we have to create an experience that's supportive and appropriate to those students. But what's your thinking then around kind of what students should do to prepare in those situations? You know, there's, there's nothing to stop a student reading ahead about conditions. Um, you know, maybe accessing lecture notes is not going to be available to them at that point in time. Their information hasn't been taught. What would we, what are your feelings, both of you really, around how, how we could support students to prepare for placement? <laughs> we laughed and laughed at this point with my sudden realisation that I had asked and answered my own question at great length and then asked the question again. <laughs> so I stopped for a moment and actually let others people speak.
Um, so my first thought then would be um, there are resources available, um, even if you haven't you haven't had the university resources. I would be thinking about wanting to make sure that you're accessing something respectable and um, you know robust that that cited its sources that you knew you could rely on. Um, but you know various um, conditions and communication disorders will have associated charities or organisations or bodies who um, put lots of information out there for people with the condition or for their families to support them. Sometimes even for, for professionals working with them. Mm -hmm. And they would probably be a really good starting point to get an understanding of the of the different disorders that you might be working with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I know that sometimes we do worry about internet searches, but in some ways it is useful to do an internet search and see what comes up because that's what family members of patients will be doing. Ah, and so it's point. interesting to see what is out there and therefore making maybe some suggestions to families in the future. Well, I know this website is here, but this one explains it much better or or this one is, is more in line with what we do here. So maybe look at that one. So that can be useful. Um, and, and the other thing to do would just be take the initiative and contact your practice educator before you come and ask them what what client groups might I come in uh, contact with? Um, what wards do you cover? What assessments do you use? That sort of thing, just so that you know, well, this person only works in the acute stroke. Well, I'll focus some attention there. Yes, there might be other comorbidities happening. That's OK. I can look at that later versus somebody who works in the entire hospital, which means you might get a little bit of lots of different things and that's okay. But being, and, and that's it as well, saying before you go and see these patients, do you know, I don't actually know a lot about these patients. Can we talk about what I might be seeing? Um, just just taking that step. Um, I don't think anybody should be marked down for being honest and asking questions about conditions because the thing is as we continue to learn as clinicians we're learning new things every day as well so Absolutely. it's a taking mm -hmm. initiative to maybe ask if your clinician can recommend anything in particular that would be useful any particular article that they've read recently and I very much encourage students when I speak to them about placement to be sharing the literature as in telling students, uh, telling practice educators about something interesting that they've read recently because we are in the unique position at the University of Get having access quite readily to some of the resources that are very, very new. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess you yeah, have new students reading ahead in the module descriptors too, if you haven't covered the, the topic, if you like, or the 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 module, the, the module descriptor and you know its associated reading lists are available to students. And one other thing I was going to say was the RCSLT website because it's mm -hmm. got quite a nice evidence-based kind of um, resource list or reference list for many of the condition types. And um, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's quite up to date. And all of our students are RCSLT members, really. So mm -hmm. we have a login yeah. to the RCSLT website. That's a yeah. great resource. I was also mm -hmm. going to say, and when you said about sharing resources, that reminded me that, of course, you know, that there, there may be other students on your in your year group who've been on that placement before. And it's yeah. always a good question to ask, what what would you have wished that you had known before you went or what? Uh -huh, one that's thing, a good question. Uh -huh, and, and everybody's always got an answer to that. You know, uh -huh. oh, I wish I had known this. Um, or, uh, you know, what one particular resource did you find most helpful? Was there something that explained this? Because I'm struggling to understand it, you know, and, and these are people who've been there, done that. You don't always need to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. It could be a struggle, can't it? It can be a worry for students about being mm -hmm. well prepared. I wanted to talk a wee bit about some of the challenges of the hospital environment. Now, we've touched on this a little bit already in our podcast, but mm -hmm. I remember this really, really well. You know, this idea of 
I mentioned it in my right in my introduction really of feeling a bit clunky it's a very Scottish word isn't it but a bit mm-hmm. awkward a bit unsure of where to stand and where to be if you like when I was working with nurses and doctors who were busy in this fast-paced very knowledgeable environment and we had a lovely comment in from Gemma one of her students you know around something that came to mind for her observing her PE for example talking towards staff about assessment updates new targets but but Gemma herself not being sure about what that person's role was with the with the patient there was so much happening to question things you know but now now she's left after the placement kind of wondering about it which I think is a really honest account and Phoebe one of the students from South Clyde had got in touch and said you know feeling clunky and feeling like you were getting in the way everything moving quickly and knowing everyone knowing what they were doing apart from her and maybe struggling to concentrate a little bit as well I wondered what what you might think about the challenges of the hospital environment if there's any additional ones you can think of Katie or I I absolutely agree with some of these comments and I remember feeling like that myself. I remember looking at the student physios and student OTs who, to be fair, are on placement for weeks and weeks and just thinking, wow, they're so hands on. and, And I'm just standing back here at the nurses station. Oh, my goodness. And it does take a while for that to sort of disappear. And and it's always an amazing thing if you get the opportunity to shadow the physios or the OTs when they're doing an assessment and just have a look at how they do it and then you think do you know they're they're doing this walking assessment and that's great but the way they've explained it this person I know he's only understanding one stage command so this is way over his head and then you think okay well actually I do have something to share here Um, and one of the nice things that happened on when I last had a student is she participated in a student stroke day and it was pharmacy students, medical students, physio students, OT students, everybody got together in a virtual chat room and they were talking about managing a case and I I wasn't sure how it was going to go, it's the first one I've asked a student to go along with and she reflected that suddenly she realised how much she did know and how much she could contribute even though she wasn't hands-on moving a patient, feeding a patient, all this her knowledge about communication impairment and um, information around diet and seating and position these sorts of things really came into their own in these discussions so um i think it's easy to get into like get a bit intimidated by other professions in the hospital and that is challenging for speech therapists but actually when you step up to the table and you think I do have a lot to bring here. I do. And I've got time to sit and speak to my patient, whereas everybody else is rushing off to see the next patient. How interesting what you were just saying there and what a great experience that person had. And it, it sort of made me think back to when I was a student and, you know, all the people that you spend all of your time with are your, your the other students, your peers who are in the same boat as you or, um, you know, the lecturers who should know more than you do about this or your practice educators who should also and do also know much more about you. All. And you just feel all the time like I don't know anything because everyone yeah. knows more than me. And actually you do know loads and you, mm-hmm. lo- you, you are learning loads and it's a huge kind of learning experience and it's just how nice to have that experience to be able to share that knowledge because Mm -hmm. students do bring so much and as a I may be going off topic a bit here but I just remember as a practice educator I loved having students because I just 
just felt that I didn't have the time to keep up with the evidence base as much as I wanted to. And here were students coming and telling me, just going back to what you were saying, Fiona, about share your resources. You know, they mm -hmm. were telling me, well, this is what I've learned. And I loved it. I lapped it up. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And they were asking me good questions. You know, I was doing things because this is the way that I do it. And, mm -hmm. and well, why are you doing it that way? Oh, well, that's a really good point. Um, so, yeah. So I, I just think it's really it's, it's important that students know how valuable you are, how valuable yeah. your knowledge is and how Absolutely. much you're bringing. Mm -hmm. So there's something here, isn't there, about stepping up and really trying to encourage students to take the initiative to seek opportunities, if you like, mm -hmm. to, you know, take on these challenges. You know, the hostile environment is challenging and let's mm -hmm. look for opportunities in which you can find your worth and find yeah. your value so that you don't feel like someone who's struggling to concentrate or a little bit unsure of your role, that you can mm -hmm. seek an opportunity to prove actually that you do belong. Yeah. You do yeah. have a contribution to make. And yeah. one thing that I found really interesting was Rachel Barnard got in touch on Twitter. Now, Rachel's just completed a PhD, I think, I may stand connected, but I think it's at City University, perhaps in London. And Rachel commented that the whole motivation for her PhD stemmed from intense feelings of awkwardness trying to capture nurses' attention on stroke wards. Mm -hmm. Listen to what Rachel said recently um, in relation to that. This is a very short introduction to a paper based on observations and interviews with speech and language therapists and nurses during an ethnographic study on stroke wards in the UK. Speech therapists and nurses had different experiences of the ward across time. Nurses worked shifts and were on the ward day and night, whereas speech therapists worked fixed hours and came and went from patient areas. These differences influenced how they interacted and what information they chose to share with each other. Informal exchanges usually involve interrupting the flow of work of another person. So to talk to nurses, speech therapists frequently needed to disturb them. Nurses were usually very busy and they needed to stay quite close to patients. So there was never a really good time to interrupt. Speech therapists spent a lot of time waiting for a window in time when nurses were in between tasks. But knowing they only had a small window, they kept to information they could convey quickly and that they thought nurses were most interested in hearing. This usually meant information about swallowing, which was needed to help patients eat, drink and take medications in a safe way. This brief window in time was not well suited to talking about the communication needs of patients, for example, ways of supporting people with aphasia. Communication took longer to discuss and to show how it was relevant and could be put to use for patient benefit. They were less likely to wait for nurses or go looking for them to share information about the communication needs of patients, unless they were also sharing swallowing information or if a nurse happened to be around as they entered or left patient areas. Speech therapists would have liked communication information to have a higher profile, but they felt constrained by the information sharing context and they self-limited how much they shared. This matters to patients because if speech therapists and nurses talk more about how to support them, their experience of communicating with staff in hospital could potentially be improved. That's as much as I can say in two minutes, but please do get in touch if you'd like to hear more. A quick note to say that if anyone wants to hear more from Rachel, you can catch her on Twitter at Rachel underscore Barnard underscore. In her pinned tweet, there are links to this YouTube video in which she discusses her most recent paper. 
and links to the paper itself. The paper is called When Interactions Are Interruptions, an Ethnographic Study of Information Sharing Between Speech and Language Therapists and Nurses on a Stroke Ward. Everything that Rachel has mentioned here spoke to me and reminded me of many, many experiences of wanting to be a good colleague to only interrupt nurses who are extremely busy Mm-hmm. Doing many, many, many tasks, a very, very complex task being a nurse, huge mm-hmm. roles. Yep. I didn't I wanted to be a good colleague, I didn't mm-hmm. want to interrupt them, I wanted to give them what they needed, and I wanted to do it in an efficient manner. Our guest host Katie listened to this for the first time during the podcast, and I asked her about some of her thoughts. No, I absolutely agree. I think generally whenever I'm on wards trying to feedback I always am so aware of how busy everybody is and in some cases if it's a medical round I think oh I feel a bit intimidated because these are consultants and what have I got to add and I think it's taken a while to develop a thick skin and think do you know what actually they do need to know this um, I think bringing it back to a topic that was mentioned right at the start when um, we were talking about the family of the Huntington's patient where you had to have that discussion about eating and drinking with knowledge of aspiration risk and mm-hmm. that is a serious discussion that we have to highlight with consultants, with GPs, um, with families and patients and we do just have to think, do you know, this is important, these discussions especially about the swallowing absolutely but equally about the communication and yes we need to tell the nurses but we also need to tell the physios the occupational therapists the nursing assistants so being able to go along to the handovers or the MDT meetings once a week that's brilliant because you realise that everybody is just as polite and holds back sometimes as you or or learn from people who are more forthright and come out straight away with what their input has been um, and sort of copying some of that skill. Um, but again, and just thinking, right, who, who have you got around you, nursing auxiliaries, who's actually going to be supporting this patient? Nursing auxiliaries, they are actually the most important person to tell how this person communicates or, you know, they're they're about to go to a physio session. They need to follow instructions. Well, actually, the physio needs to know this. So writing in our notes, absolutely. And in Fife, we use highlighters to just highlight the important bits. And I have highlighted screeds in my notes to make sure people read the important bits. So you're saying this is all important. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> this is important. important. Yes. I love it. But there is something here, isn't there, that maybe my recommendation to students wherever possible and practice educators is to try to create an opportunity for the student to practice doing something that could be uncomfortable yeah. and then dealing with the potential aftermath or the emotions or feelings after that of maybe going and requesting something from a ward clerk or administrative member of staff or a nurse or going to do some handover information or it's something that feels really really important and getting used to that feeling of just being a key member of that hospital team that's involved with that particular person. I also think it, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of practice, because the thing that really struck me in there was these kind of nuances. You know, she was talking about um, how you're more likely to kind of put across dysphagia information and these kind of, you know, straight, perhaps, perhaps, well, to my understanding, more of a kind of medical kind of straightforward. This is, you know, do this, this stage, this phase, whatever. Um, but then we were talking before about um 
you know, people's experience of trauma, people's experience of being on a being on a ward and how that might feel, people's experience of isolation, people's communication skills. And these are a lot more kind of nuanced and sophisticated conversations that are more difficult to boil down into, I've got 15 seconds before yeah. the nurse runs off to say. And so actually, maybe this comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of practice. Well, how can you boil down some of these really difficult um, sophisticated, nuanced conversations into something that that is easy to get across to somebody who's who's busy and trying to move on. Yeah, yeah. I think it always comes back to this level of training that your speech and language therapist and um, clinical educator has been able to do before you get on placement with nursing staff. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to be doing a secondment at the moment to another hospital, and I have one word to myself and we've been doing lots and lots of you know foundation training about communication and that's great and I could bring a student in and send them in and know that they could talk to the nurse about aphasia and the nurse would know what they're talking about but in reality especially in the acute setting nurses are just dealing with so many different things that it is hard mm -hmm. to be able to you know know everything so it is again it's important for students to think how do I put this across to nurses in a way that they can understand quickly it isn't going to bamboozle them it isn't going to go straight out the other ear um and yeah just getting that information there so practice practice on your peers practice, practice on your yeah yes yeah. and also what a good point there about know your audience know because your you know the nurse has maybe had tons of training in aphasia and knows exactly mm -hmm. what aphasia is or the person you're speaking to hasn't you know mm -hmm. so so know who you're talking to know yeah. try and establish a, a sort of a, a level of what do you understand by this what does this mean to you perhaps as mm -hmm. well that's a mm -hmm. very very good point i wanted to take some time to explore the quite complex topic of what makes a good practice educator you'll notice that i mentioned to katie that we've had some feedback about her particular style, some positive feedback on that over the years, and you'll notice she's a bit modest about it. But hey, we have to celebrate these things, don't we? Move on now to think about what makes a good practice educator. Okay. In this case, in a hospital environment, but actually just in general, we've all been practice educators here, we've all been students, we're all interested in student development. But I'd love to hear your views, Katie, and what you think would make a good practice educator. And I ask this mainly because some, we get some fabulous feedback about your particular style, Katie. Oh, <laughs> you just talk to us a little bit about about that style and how you do it with students that you think is important and yeah. valuable to their experience. Okay. Well, like I've said before, if you're a student with myself. I will send you a few sheets to do before and one of them is thinking of course about what you want to get out of the placement but the other part of that when you arrive is I look at what do I want to get out of the placement because it's not only the student that's learning and taking something from this experience it's me as well and and just being open and honest from the start that yeah this is this is going to be a learning experience and you want to get the best out of it and yes being open to the student starting to shadow you straight away and you know I quite often get my students to write my notes for me I'll dictate to them they're writing it so they see how I how I lay things out and by the end of the placement it'd be lovely to see the students having the confidence to write their reflections in the medical notes but you know having it in a structured way and we'll go through how 
I like to lay notes out and why I do it that way, but I'm open to discussions about how we do that. Um, and I quite often ask my students questions about patients we're seeing, about what they think about what we've just seen, about what they think about the recommendations I've made. And, and it's in no way to put people on the spot because I absolutely hate that myself and I go blank. But just, you know, having that discussion, turning it into a discussion rather than an on the spot question. Well, OK, why do you think that? Well, this is why I was doing that. Can you add anything to that? What else could we be thinking about here? Um, and again, I just think it's it's what one of the, the students said in their feedback was it just helps them cement their knowledge in everything in the neurology aspect, in the different disorders aspect, in the well-being of their patient aspect when you have a conversation like that. And just, yeah, bring in all the different aspects about patient care. Um, so, yeah, I think just you know, just getting the student involved right from the start as an active participant. Whenever I see a patient with a student, I always say, this is my student, they're watching me. We're just here to see you, is that okay? But it's about us two, it's not really about the patient. And then the patient feels relaxed and the student feels relaxed and it's all eyes on me and I'm the therapist and I've got to do my best. <laughs> but hopefully that brings down the tension quite a bit. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and I will quite often say to my patient, uh, my students, right, have a chat with him while I go and get a drink and see what information you can get. Or or I might have met this patient before and be able to say, oh, you know, Bob loves fishing. Ask him about him when he was fishing in Canada and I will leave with that. So you've got something to get started with because it is very awkward going into a room, never having met a person before and they can't communicate easily. But I think as a PE, we should be saying, well, here you go. Here's a start. Because if it was anybody else coming in, if it was a physio or a real tea, that's what I would do with them too. So absolutely. And and I think it's it's just promoting the best opportunities that that student can get over that feeling of embarrassment, a feeling of being out of place. Um, and I also always get my students to thicken my drinks for me. So if you come to the Victoria Hospital, get ready to thicken some cocktails because that's a big <laughs> thing. Can you mix a level one drink? Go. <laughs> Amazing. There is something here. There's so much in what you said here. There's something about giving students opportunity to get involved, to be conducting assessments from early on or interventions, if you like. And that may be daunting at the time, but it's the confidence, isn't it? It's getting that level of support to be confident about making mistakes. And I quite right. like what you had to say there about balancing, you know, asking questions of the students to get the students thinking, but not making those students feel like they're having to think you know making them having to think on their feet but not making them yeah. feel like they're under huge amounts of pressure to answer and I know that's feedback we've had about about you we've shared that um, individually you know yeah. learning students learn a lot you know from that way of teaching and it really can help them with clinical decision making you also mentioned in a conversation we've had previously Katie about you would expect a student um almost to be to be willing and able to discuss feelings and acknowledge the emotions of these placements and yeah. creating yeah. opportunities for that. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think you talked about exit planning. Would you be willing exit to planning is really important for me, especially just now with you know the fact that we're all having to wear masks. Sometimes you have to wear face shields. It is very hot in the hospital. We can't have any fans on because that would spread COVID nineteen. So. It is extreme temperatures, extreme situations, and and we're still expecting patients uh, to be seen who are, 
you know, they've maybe had some surgery, they've maybe had a severe accident, they, they've just had a stroke, they're, they're maybe dealing with incontinence. So there's a lot going on there. And, and one of the things that we've been doing is having this exit plan and discussing it not just once in a day, but every single patient that we go and see. A lot of the time it is in different words, but just saying, this is where I'm going to come and find you. Just make your way here. I will come and find you and we'll come off the ward. Just leave the room. It's okay. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. Everybody gets overwhelmed. Even even nurses can become overwhelmed at the moment, especially mm-hmm. with the added pressure of COVID and, and all the trauma that's going on with that. We all have our own backstory. So different things trigger different people. But I would never want a student to stay in a room in a situation they're uncomfortable with just because they think I might mark them down. Absolutely not. I will happily excuse myself from an assessment and come out and find you and we can discuss whether you feel ready to come back in or whether you sit this one out and and that's fine um and I think that's really important for clinical educators to think you know this is not a normal time in our life this isn't a normal situation and it's hard enough doing an acute placement especially in intensive care units we we need to be cutting everybody slack and especially people who aren't used to this situation and only come in maybe once a week. It's a lot of trauma. I have a lot of support for students who are continued, either commenced or continued studying in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Absolutely. This pandemic, I think, is an absolute a huge achievement, actually. Mm-hmm. Supporting these students in placement is always something. I mean, I wouldn't have come into this job had I not been interested in how we can support you know, practice-based learning and support students in clinical environments. And I think for me, it's just, it's all, you know, it's everything that you say here and just the sense of actually all learners are different and actually yeah. will be a little bit different and the mm-hmm. sense of almost whatever, you know, wherever possible, wherever and whenever possible, being in partnership with your students. So, mm-hmm. you know, that you can create a learning opportunity for that student that's tailored to them, but also helps you get your work done in a day. And I know that mm-hmm. makes it sound easy and I completely appreciate from experience that it's not, but there's something... Mm-hmm quite magical I think when that all works and comes yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a little um, analogy that any students who are listening to this who I've taught recently will be sick of hearing because I mention <laughs> it all the time and it's very cliched but I love it and it, I'd heard it quite early on in um, when the pandemic started last year somebody talking about you know everyone kept trying to reassure people and say well we're all in the same boat we're all in the same boat and actually someone had responded to that and I think it comes from a poem but had responded it to say Um, to it to say um, we're not all in the same boat we're all in the same storm but we're all in our own boats and I know it's very much a cliche and I know I say it a lot but I really like it and I think I think it's really important to remember that you know like you said we've all got our own backstories Mm -hmm. you know we're all Mm -hmm. coming at this differently we've all got our own triggers Um, and I think it's really important for us to appreciate not only everyone else is coming from from different places but you know we're Mm -hmm. coming from our own place too and I think I think I just it really made me happy to hear you talk about the students in that way and mm-hmm. um you know kind of thinking about an exit plan in that way yeah. and understanding yeah. that we're all coming to this with our own with our own stories yeah I think the thing I think that we have to all obviously remember too and I think we're acknowledging that here very much is that all practice educators are different and have different ways of doing things but understanding I guess ultimately you know we, have, we are so lucky here we have got so many wonderful practice mm-hmm. educators who are mm-hmm giving our students absolutely marvellous experiences under really, really tricky mm-hmm. circumstances. And I think for me, it's Absolutely. the same thing that we mentioned at the start, 
the way we are as practice educators yeah. with our learners actually influences who they go on to become, not just as SLTs, but as practice mm -hmm. educators themselves. So actually your impact is so huge on the the future, not mm -hmm. just the next generation of SLTs, but the ones after that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's looking on the flip side as well, is yes, we've got great clinical educators, absolutely, but we've got amazing students who have, you know, put themselves through jobs who are currently paying their way through university who are doing caring on the side who've done so much experience to get into university we absolutely need to look at these students and think hats off to you it is very hard to get into this course at the moment and we absolutely need to applaud them and support them through and yes adult acute might not be for every one of them but i hope if they do come on placement with me they walk away thinking I enjoyed parts of that, but it wasn't for me, or I enjoyed some of that. When's the next job coming up in the acute hospital? Because, yeah, it's 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 a privilege to be able to support these new students coming through. I absolutely love having placements. So, yeah, I look forward to the next lot of students coming. Well, can I come on placement with you? You sound amazing as a PE. <laughs> that's absolutely lovely. I totally, yeah, I just think that's wonderful. Let's okay. end our podcast thinking about the advice that students have given yeah, for each other. other students for um, for practice placement in, in acute hospital settings. We've, we're just going to read through some comments here, if that's OK. So Alison has said, um, be open minded. I love this. Don't be afraid to ask questions, share reflections and feelings openly. Um, Jess has come in and said, Jessica's come in and said, my advice would be to expect the unexpected, which I love, you know, yeah, I find yeah. it quite difficult going into an acute setting as someone who always likes to be prepared, but you never really know what cases you're going to see. Yeah, um, I love Jess's next point where she says, if sessions and conversations don't go exactly to plan, don't be too hard on yourself. Absolutely. I love that one. You know, you don't know what's going on in that person's background or what they're in, in with, you know, you just are there that moment in time. So yeah, don't beat yourself up on things yeah that's and she touches as well and thinking ahead about useful metaphors and you know to avoid all the medical jargon maybe think about ways you know that you're you might explain to somebody about what's happening you can prepare all of that in advance you know she said that I noticed my PE had good metaphors up her sleeve to explain to the patient why they were having difficulties and went on to give us some examples of that and that you wouldn't know everything and that's okay acute placements are full on but it's incredibly valuable to see the support and rehab that SLT can give to patients and families. Mm -hmm. George has commented that my best advice to students about to embark on an adult placement is to expect to feel a little overwhelmed and out of your depth at the start and that's okay I mean it's okay if you're not I'm adding in this mm -hmm. but yeah you're absolutely with it on day one that's fine but it's okay you know if you're out of your depth at the start um George has added but be open to learning and giving things a go independently even if you don't feel ready because chances are you know more than you think you do and yeah. Georgia felt that that was very much the case for her, that she had doubted yeah. herself a lot um, as everything felt very new and wasn't entirely confident. But being given that independence and support from a practice educator to make decisions, um, sometimes with support and sometimes without, showed that, in fact, she had a lot more knowledge than she thought she would have. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. really, really enjoyed speaking to you today. I think we have reached the end of our recording and the end of our podcast. I found this really, really valuable. Yeah. 
we had a conversation about how you actually go about ending a podcast and none of us could quite remember at that point in time. But safe to say that we passed on huge thanks to Katie for giving us so much of her time and taking time out of clinical work to dedicate to making this first pilot episode with us. We are extremely grateful to you, Katie, and we had great fun. I hope students have enjoyed listening to this podcast and I hope anyone else listening to it has enjoyed it too and got something out of it. I look forward to working on our next episode. Do get in touch if you have any comments or queries at sltsemesterplacements at qmu.ac.uk. Thank you so much uh, for listening from all of us and goodbye.